Welcome to the Carolinas, where serial killers, abductions, and mysterious circumstances are abundant. Join me, Tiffany, and my co-host Sam, two moms, as we cover local true crime cases that will leave you wanting more. Tune in every weekend for our new episodes where we rotate between North Carolina and South Carolina true crime cases. Find us on all major podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio, and follow us on our social media. We're on Instagram at Cola City Crime, and you can find our Facebook page by searching our name, Cola City Crime. Um, yeah, I, I've watched every one of your films, uh, which Olivia has as well. Um, what was one of your, uh, favorite ones that you've done? That's a tough question. You know, when I ask different people, they all have different favorites. Um, I still think it's H.H. H. Holmes. You know, I mean, H.H. H. Holmes is my first film, but you could see gradually, you know, how with each film I catered it to that specific serial killer and, you know, having more reenactments as I went along. And then serial killer culture, of course, I didn't really have reenactments that which was interviewed. But H.H. H. Holmes really opened that door for me. You know, it won me some awards, which I was very gracious to receive. And, you know, at that time, no one had really heard much about Holmes other than the book The Devil in the White City. But even before that, the last book on Holmes was in the 70s called Torture Doctor. So um, it did very well, and it was such a fun process making it. I got to work with my idol, Tony Jay, who had done voiceover for Disney films, such as the Disney Hunchback. He was the judge, the villain, and he was in many other TV shows and series. Um, so that was a lot of dream come true, you know, and, and uh, I still look back on it with fond memories. And, and I think, you know, even as a film at 64 minutes, it's really tight and it tells the story at a decent pace and keeps up the suspense. Um, what made you choose H.H. H. Holmes as your first film? Is it just due to, uh, like, not a lot out there on him? There was that, but when I was in college, I was looking... I was trying to think of a project that I could make for a first film when I got out of college. And that was my senior year in college way back in like 96. And I was doing a report for a uh, history class in college. And I had found this book about Chicago history and it had all this stuff about the castle of H.H. H. Holmes. And that really fascinated me. But then when I read Harold Schechter's book, uh, Depraved, I believe it is, uh, where you know, he outlined basically Holmes' his entire life. And I thought that's even more fascinating because just this isn't just some lunatic who designed a building. This was an evil genius, somebody who thought about the, the building and the plans and what he would do in the building. And uh, very much like Edgar Allan Poe, 
page home. So even in the Chicago newspapers, there was some information, but the majority of the information came from the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is where his trial was held in Philadelphia. So it was really difficult. There weren't many pictures of Holmes, or probably about three or four, maybe one with that drawing of, you know, which was on his own story, the book he wrote while he was in prison. So it was really difficult. So my first edit was a lot of photos and, you know, images and location footage. But then when I watched it, I thought to myself as a viewer, I would want to see something inside that castle and nothing's available anymore, of course, because it was demolished. But that's when I decided to up the ante and I did the reenactments and, you know, hired a sound designer and then a uh, great composer and then Tony J, of course, which, you know, without his voice, I, if it's a price was alive, he was always my favorite. I envisioned him to do the voice over. At one point, I even thought about trying to take his voice over from all of his movies and edit them together in the narration style. But Tony J, you know, was a living legend at that time. So, again, it, it was just a great experience. But yeah, I mean, there were a bunch of factors that kind of led into the making of it. Another one was that um, when I first got into college, my friend and I would do makeup effects and his dad worked at a police station. He was a detective and my friend had the whole Dahmer file with the copies of the pictures, bad copies, but, you know, these are really striking to me and never forgot that. So in college, I also made a short film based on Dahmer. So, you know, it came naturally for me to do that H.H. Holmes because that's where my serial killer interest began. Because before that, I really didn't know much about them. I knew of them, but it was really kind of college and after when I really started looking more deeper into serial killers and the different types of serial killers, you know, whether they're cannibals or vampires. And those were the ones that really... Uh, interested me, the ones with this extreme psychopathy. And then after H.H. H. Holmes, I was thinking, well, who else could I do? And then nobody ever did a film on Fish either. So, you know, Albert Fish, and I thought, well, I'll continue on with that. Yeah, Fish is a whole <clears throat> interesting case, too. But, like, speaking of H.H. H. Holmes, which, like I said, I think your book that you put out and then your documentary, I think, was one of the first things I had watched on him, actually. And then. I know you got the TV show that you're in, what uh, American Ripper, you know, that the whole Jack the Ripper and H.H. H. Holmes connection, well, possible connection that most likely I, I don't believe is true. Right. And um, I'm trying to think, he's still kind of not well known. Like Albert Fish is a little bit more well known than he is, but I was surprised though, too. Like you said, there's no films done on him really. And there's not really, I think, besides yours, is there really any other thing out there? You know what, Albert Fish, there was a movie called The Great Man that was a feature film, and I still haven't watched it. I have it, but I got entangled in a lawsuit because the UK distributor of The Great Man took my poster design, which is basically a cross with, you know, turned into a knife at the bottom of the cross, and you could see Albert Fish's face in the cross. Well, this UK company actually stole the cross image. They didn't even alter it. They just lifted it right off of my, you know, poster. And then they put their actor behind it. So, you know, I did win that lawsuit, so you'll never see that design again. So whoever has that design, it's going to be worth money because they don't make them anymore. But you're right. I mean, Melbourne Fish, you don't really hear much about, but I think it does, you know, the children and the cannibalism and everything he did. It's just, to me, he's one of the worst, like, scariest because you'd basically, you know, torture children just to hear their screams and cries. That's what he got off on. You know, he's supposedly, in his mind, he 
case. And I think, you know, the public was also surprised that they could have one over on him by, you know, this unassuming elderly looking man that got away with so much. Um, but yeah, even H.H. Holmes is kind of, you know, people are interested, but it's hard to find stuff. You know, there's always the golden era of serial killers, right, that we hear about, the mm-hmm. Mundy and Casey and Ramirez and, you know, all those guys. But I'm very interested in the earlier guys just as well, maybe even more, you know, like Jesse Pomeroy and Carl Pantram and all these people, which not many people hear about, but I think they're in a way worse because they got away with it for so long, and who knows how many their totals are. Because the further you go back, obviously, there were many crime detection techniques, and those stories also I find fascinating from the detective's point of view and how they were apprehended. Yeah, uh, speaking with old, like, even Ed Gein, I've actually, people actually don't know who he is. Like, he was back, you know, in the 50s and stuff, but, like, a lot of people do not know him compared to, like you said, Bundy and all them and Gacy and see Ridgeway, Dahmer, like, it's weird because he's also inspired a lot of movies, a lot of characters in movies, and, oh, yeah. like, he's just yeah, a he Yeah, you're right, but, but you're right, not many people know about him, but I, I also think, you know, that kind of early American time period, you know, before the 60s, you know, it, you know, that where America is trying to make it this, you know, happy homeowners and leave it to Beaver kind of household, especially in the 50s. So Albert Fish and Ed Gein had to have shocked those people to where even H.H. Holmes to where I think they didn't want to face it or talk about it. And they put it away for so long. And, you know, people like me and some other authors are bringing them, you know, to life and, and telling their stories. But, you know, they, they definitely are very vile, especially Albert Fish. I mean, at the time, they called his mental disturbances perversions. And they had to create new ones just for him because there weren't enough of the psychological books. It's fascinating. And, and you know, if you read my book, The Ed Game File, that's what I start the book off with. Uh, but I'm sorry, well, Albert Fish, both of those books, but the Albert Fish book, it's all his Yeah, well, Albert Fish was what third in the thirties, well, twenties and thirties. Yeah. yeah, I was like, yeah. um, like I said, his like we were talking like his case is just like really like you said with the whole kid. Like I've said on like other episodes, like the kid cases are I guess just having children, but they always I find them most interesting. But I find them interesting because I like I look at my kids, you know, and I'm like. How can somebody look at them and be like, hey, I want to do that, you know what I mean? Like, do something like that to them. And, like, his letters and stuff that he had sent to the parents were just really, really out there. And um, I think it was something you had done where, forgot his name, the gentleman that has his letter. Oh, Joe Coleman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he has the original letter from Albert Fish. And, I mean, you know, know, there are kind of three things that, I feel maybe, you know, true crime murderabilia collectors feel that are like the, you know, the kind of gold of, you know, serial color collectibles. Uh, one is probably the Albert Fish letter. Another, I, I think, is the Ed Gein crucifix and the, uh, or Augusta Gein's crucifix that belonged to Ed Gein. But then I, I think Casey's rosary, you know, that he held, you know, when, you know, he was arrested and then when he was in jail and he showed them how he strangled his victim. So, that's another interesting world, you know, when you go into that, the whole collecting thing and these artifacts, which, you know, people call murderabilia, but I think they're artifacts, and these are like living legacies to these crimes, and again, people want to push a lot of this into the shadows, but 
Yeah, I've noticed that, like, where we're from, like, people are interested, but, like, they just don't want to talk about it. But, like, it's hit, like, it's dark history, but it's still history. Um, do you get, like, a lot of, like, what's your feedback you usually get when you uh, release a book or a film? Is it pretty positive for the most part? Yeah, it's pretty positive. You know, I mean, I think because I don't, personally, I don't think I cross that boundary of sensationalism. Um, now, you know, there's a younger generation now that's coming up that I have noticed, and it's just a little scary that they are kind of crossing that line into the sensationalism. And it's just, it's something that I'm not interested in. You know, I want to tell their stories historically, but, you know, I don't, you know, necessarily want to, you know, show any artwork or anything about the victims themselves, you know, mention them in my film, of course, but, you know, when it pertains to other, like, pop culture items, you know, I think, you know, there is a line. Um, so, so that's the way I'd say, I mean, my films are studying the psychology, the sociology, the history of the time period that the serial killers lived in, which was very important for how they got away with their crimes for so long. So, you know, I, at least I, I try to say it's more history and, and, you know, people could learn from it. Now, you know, sometimes I'm at expos and, you know, people will come up, but then they never want to have a dialogue. I, I mean, I'm happy to discuss these things with people. At uh, the Chicago Oddities and Curiosities Expo, I usually I bring my pogo as a stand-up, pogo the clown, and I have my books on display. And pogo is kind of, uh, you know, an attraction piece. But I see pogo as his own character in a sense now. I don't have a stand-up with John Wayne Gacy. You know, even the people are taking pictures of pogo with their kids, all ages, kids, elderly people, you know, whether they know it or not. But I believe pogo has become a pop culture figure himself after being on all these album covers and T-shirts and, you know, all the, you know, kind of ephemera based on him. So, you know, this woman came up and she didn't come too close, but she said, oh, do you know when you've got all this stuff? Do you know any victims, right, advocates? And then she walked away. She didn't want to have a conversation. If she would have, I would have said, I know survivors. You know, I've been touched with the railroad killer, but Sentence Ramirez, one of his victims. I know survivors, too. I mean, her, uh, you know, Tony Antonucci, who survived Gacy, he's going to be in my miniseries. Uh, you know, I know victims and survivors, and I'm very, you know, understanding of their cause. And if anyone wants to have a dialogue, I'm more welcome to it. But a lot of people just want to be offended, you know, and then they just point and walk away. And that's like, okay, you want to do that, that's fine. But I, I, you know, I, it's deeper for me than, you know, just obviously a pogo on display and, and doing the works because I study everything. And that's why I'm saying after my Daisy film, I can't wait to get back to Jesse Pomeroy because he only killed two, two victims. I didn't know what I was getting into because, you know, I have to study all, well, the, you know, the known victims of Daisy, which I am doing on an individual basis too. Did you have a, Olivia had a question for you. Oh, yeah. Um. Hi, Olivia. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, I get anxious. Um, so, have you? did you always want to be like an author and a filmmaker? Or did that just kind of come later in life, like when you got into true crime? Well, when I was younger, I would do special makeup because I really wanted to get into special makeup effects. And in a sense, it's kind of good that I didn't because computer graphics took over. I mean, there's still makeup out there, which is good. Um, but as a teenager, I would sculpt masks and cast them and make masks and do prosthetics on my face. And and then my best friend and I, he would do it too, the makeup stuff. And then we would make short films, shot. 
on an eight millimeter, which, you know, back then it was a different story. We would film it on eight millimeter film, take the film and get it developed and have to wait a week to get it back. So there was always that cool kind of nervous anticipation. And when you picked it up, it's like, oh yeah, now we could put it in the projector and watch it. Um, so it was a little different times, but then, uh, you know, I always wanted to go into makeup, but then a friend of mine told me about, there was a film program at Columbia College, and I thought, well, you know, why not go into that? Because that way I could make, you know, all types of films, documentary, narrative, short films. And I, it, that's kind of what interested me, you know, and then, um, but when I went to Columbia College, it was really for narrative films, but then I got very interested in documentaries and serial killer cases, and then I thought, well, you know, if I could take my narrative film knowledge and put that with the documentary, these could be really cool, and you could see that with, you know, my films, especially the biographies, where there's reenactments, they're almost kind of like docudramas. So special makeup, then film, and kind of in between that, I thought about being a, uh, you know, working with animals, because I loved animals, of course. Um, but, you know, filmmaking one in the end, and, and, you know, I've loved it. It's been amazing. And then becoming an author was the offshoot of being a filmmaker, because I thought, well, I research all these cases. Why can't I take that knowledge and put it in a book so people could research, you know, and, and you know, benefit from my research? So it's been an interesting journey, and, and you know, true crime, you know, is is popular. And I think the fact that I choose these earlier killers as well that fascinates people because some know of them, some don't know of them, majority don't. And when they find out, they're very fascinated because we all hear about you know the Bundys, the Gacy's, Ramirez's. You know, I I chose to do Gacy now just because you know I live in Chicago, and, and you know there are other reasons as well. But I'm still fascinated by the early cases. Yeah, that's, I like how that kind of progressed into, like, it started in one way and evolved into this brilliant thing, because, like, all your work is absolutely, like, I don't even know the word I'm looking for. Like, it's astounding to me. Like, I just love them all. You can see the work that you put into it, and it's different from other things. It's not, like, the same old thing that you're getting out of other true crime documentaries, and I really love that. Oh, I really appreciate it because those are the words that keep me going, you know, when people enjoy my work and they see the difference, you know, they see that, you know, again, there are numerous Gacy documentaries out there now, but these are all Hollywood productions. Hollywood comes in the city, they interview their people and they leave. I live here. So I've got stuff that's going to be in my documentary, not only the majority of people haven't discovered or know about, but I've got some, you know, great interviews and a ton of great information. So I appreciate your kind words. And that's what I do. You know, I throw my whole self into it. And this case thing is an epic because there's so much, you know, to research, but there always is. But that's part of the fun, I think, for me, you know, uncovering these items or research things that I've never heard about. Like when I had a couple questions making my Gacy miniseries, I went to the two people who I felt were experts on the Gacy case. And I asked them the question. They said, we don't know what you're talking about. So then it's like, okay, I am on the right track because I found things that the experts don't know about. Yeah, that'd be something. You know, that's one thing I like with research. Like when things connect, like you said, you find out things that's like, hey, this is what's been out there and it's not true. Um, like you said, what I think personally, like with your films, uh, like you said, Hollywood just comes in, like they just do their thing. It's more for them 
I guess you could say like a money grab and just trying to yep. film it. You're, you are more on a personal basis. It seems with your projects, like you get in there personally, like you said you do the own research and everything and really take your time and you see, you know, your mind and artwork of that going in. Well, love going into that film, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And, and I'm glad you see that. And I'm sure other people see it too, because when I do expos and conventions, you know, my fans and people that have seen my work will come up to me and, and tell me, you know, those things and it really means a lot to me because they know I'm the real deal, you know, and, and, you know, Hollywood's got their stuff and they can snap their fingers and, you know, get all the footage of Gacy talking and basically lying on camera for six episodes. It's like, okay, well, that's all fine and dandy. You can watch the stuff if you want to see Gacy's face lying for six episodes, but, you know, you're going to get the true historical real deal from my miniseries, so. They're saving the best for last, so mine's going to be out after all the woods are up. Um, out of all the projects, I know I've known you, you know, through most of your Gacy project. Uh, which one do you think is probably the hardest that you've ever worked on? It's yeah, it's got to be Gacy. It's got to be Gacy because there's numerous numerous fronts that are difficult. Number one, Gacy is a more contemporary case, so we're not talking about 1930. 1895 or 1875, you know, we're talking about what, 40 years ago, you know, or whatever. And it's, it's difficult because all of the footage and all of the photographs are extremely expensive and they know that they can charge that for them. So, you know, one difficult thing in making the project is just trying to figure out how to creatively make it and work through not showing basically video or photos of PC. I have some of him, but you know, Again, it's the right issue. So I'm being creative with other forms, and, and I think that's going to make it unique as well. But again, the fact that there are 33 victims, plus you have his entire life, plus just the entire investigation and finding the body, and you know his so-called confession and interrogation, and everything about it is just fascinating to me. And I've interviewed about 35 people involved in the case. My goal was to interview one person, at least one person, from every aspect of this case. I wanted a survivor. I wanted a victim's sister, um, you know, a child, a, a friend of his, uh, you know, so at each aspect of the case, I have someone who is actually involved in the case or knew him or other, you know, local people that have stories about him or knew of him. So, but yeah, the majority of people in my miniseries have all either met DC or worked with them or prosecuted him in some way. So it's been very difficult. Each project has its difficulties. You know, I get so inundated with the research that it gets to be, you know, like this huge mountain. But then at some point I'm like, okay, I just got to get in there and, you know, you know, pare it down and, and tell the story that I have to tell. You know, you know, all these 10, 20 hours. Like my current timeline for the Gacy miniseries is 14 hours. And that's short, but I got to cut that down to who knows, maybe six or eight hours. I might have like a director's cut. And then, you know, have something for TV, you know, just for a miniseries. But it's really been an epic. But I'm lucky that I live here in Chicago, which has made it much easier for me to research and get in touch with these people because they're all still around here. Do you think that actually kind of adds to it why it's so difficult? Where, um, like, compared to, like, Fish and Holmes, you know, nobody that I know of is alive from back then. And with Gacy, there's still a lot of people alive and tied to the case. Does that add to it being kind of hard to film? A little bit, you know, because of course, you know, there are still some of these people that are involved with it. Some, 
don't want to be involved. So, you know, the majority do. But, you know, you have people for their certain reasons. I was going to interview one of the, um, I think he was one of the uh, officers or he, he was definitely one of the officials on either the court case or the police force, the, um, the sheriff's department. But, you know, he agreed. But then I think he saw my poster and then I just got an email from him saying, no, I'm not interested. I changed my mind. And that's it. Never heard from him. Couldn't get in touch with him. But, you know, some of these professionals, I get it. They think that any, any image of Pogo the Clown is glamorizing him or, you know, putting an image out there more. But that's not the thing. Obviously, I have to market, too. And I had a great poster design. So if that has, you know, that poster is not indicative of my film. It's not a horror film. I mean, miniseries. I keep saying film is a miniseries. But it's not a horror miniseries. Because we've seen that, I'm sure, in other documentaries and films. To me, it's sad. It's, it's going to be a very sad film. What Casey went through as a child, you know, what, what he went through, you know, coming into adulthood, all the victims, the poor wives that he got wrangled into it, they suffer too, of course. You know, I mean, it, it's it's a very sad story when you think about it. Yeah, I agree. That's um, a lot of what people don't understand, I guess you could say, it seems like the... Because, like, talking, you know, to killers and all that, it's like a lot of them, they were raised up really horrible. I know with Gacy, with his dad and stuff, he had, you know, some issues there. And it's yeah. like a lot of people don't understand, like, a lot of the mental abuse they suffer as a kid. And, like, if they might be had some positive guidance, he, which Gacy was very successful, though, too. You know, he had his other life outside of things, but, like, he was a very successful person. And, like, if he hadn't done that, you know, he could still be, well, but he'd be in his seventies now, so he he could still be you know thriving as a in his seventies living life if yeah. he hadn't been a murderer. Yep, yep, I agree. You know, and it's it's you know there there were a lot of things that happened in his childhood that many people don't even know. I mean, for one example, was you know his mother really babied him, of course, you know, and that you know so he wouldn't play sports because she had perceived that his health conditions, which he never had, so that's a whole other story. He would have some and blackouts, but those weren't because of his, any physical or psychological issues. There was a whole other thing that I've got people to comment on. But like one example, when he was at a hospital one time, the doctors told his mother, look, we think he should be admitted for psychiatric care. Now this was when he was, you know, probably between 12, 15, maybe. She said no, because she didn't want to put him through that. Plus, you look at those time periods, even 50s through 70s, even in the 70s still, anybody that, you know, there were no therapists. So anybody that went to a psychiatrist or a psychologist, you were crazy. And, you know, so you could see that side of the two at that time period. But it's interesting that, well, maybe if she did admit him when he was a teenager, who knows, right? I mean, there are all these who knows. But in the end, I... I'd say all the blame has to be placed on the two people, and I have their names, the two people that signed his parole from Waterloo. Because if he was still in Waterloo, you know, at those 10 years, he would have been released right when he killed the last victim. So all those 33 would be alive. Or 34. Just, there could be one more. It's going to be revealed on my phone. That is actually crazy that he had, like, uh, had served only that month. Like, what, 18 months out of, the, out of all those yep. years? Like, that's... I find that fascinating that he, like, that's really, really, like, that's not even really close to half of that. I always found that crazy when they talked about him getting out. But, yeah, I agree if they hadn't uh, got him paroled. But 
He did the same thing too with uh, Edmund Kemper because wasn't when he was like going to like uh, after he got out of prison all well not prison but lock up and stuff after killing his grandparents because didn't he have like a woman yeah. in his trunk when he was like talking to uh, yeah. I forgot and they're like yeah he had a person in his trunk the whole entire time dead and I'm like yeah. huh yeah well and and that's the thing too you know and that's the same thing with Gacy and some of these other killers people just won't believe them because it is so absurd you know I interviewed Gacy's photographer Marty Zelensky and he took all the pogo pictures and the wedding pictures and he said John could have told us hey yeah I got 26 bodies in the basement we all say yeah whatever John you're hilarious because he was always joking kidding around saying he worked for the mafia I could do things to you well what does that mean I could do things to you or I, I could get people to do things to you what does that mean you know so no one would even have believed him because he was such a great jovial guy and that's why he got out of Waterloo because he knew how to play he was a great con man he worked with the Toys for Tots toy drive when he was in prison he relocated a whole miniature golf course from one location that was closing the miniature golf course to inside the prison and that's still in prison to this day when I visited there they still have it there so you know he did all these great things and of course he said well look this guy's upstanding member of the community but you know it's always difficult all these what ifs you know and you're right Ed Kemper and there are, there were a lot of stories that you know they had bodies either in their car or their trunk I think Dahmer too was stopped one time when he had one in the car or something yeah the uh I know his Ohio victim he was like in the yep. they had him in the trash bag and he got yep. pulled over because I think he crossed the the yellow line I believe and the mm-hmm. cop pulled him over um kind of think sort of like with you saying with like gate like with that's kind of like the same thing with bundy like where he was given his name you know when he was picking up women at the beach he's like you know my name's ted like a lot of people's like hey it's you know you and then you know they just kind of like laughed it off and kind of went on about because they didn't think that he was that type of person and turns out he he was it, it's fascinating that people a lot of people which i think bundy kind of did help it as well kind of show people that you know serial killers are not like creepy looking people. They're all American men basically, or, you know, females like they're not the scary thing that people show in movies with like Leatherface and stuff like that. You know, you look at him, you're like, yeah, he's probably a serial killer. Or, and then, you know, Bundy's like, you would not think like with Gacy, you know, you would not think that, which I admit Gacy does look creepy dressed up as a clown, which a lot of people do have fear of clowns. <laughs> when he's smiling with the orange things behind him he's got that you know 33 flavors you know balloon and he's got that creepy smile with his yellow teeth it's just nasty you know <laughs> but uh you're right i mean that's hopefully what we've learned even going back to hh Holmes, you know here was a businessman lied about being a doctor but all these things and you know nobody thought he was doing things a fine upstanding member of the community but that's how they're con too they know if they get in good with people nobody will ever suspect them because wow they're a nice father or a businessman or a doctor or you know Bundy's you know this attractive you know college student you know law student uh, he would never do anything you know I hope we've learned that by now that it's usually the most attractive guys and the ones who are you know usually married or you know leading supposedly normal lives on that you know duality front I was trying to think like with Albert Fish going like with him he he does give off that creepy vibe. I just don't know if, like, if I didn't know his crimes and seen him, maybe, but a lot, every picture I've seen of him, he does give off that creepy vibe. Like, you wouldn't want to meet him in the alley. Like, he's that creepy old man that would try to kidnap you. Um, yeah, but, but if you saw him in real life, you probably wouldn't think that. You probably saw him as a 
cute old man standing on the corner, you know, and, and see, Fish wasn't highly intelligent. He just was a great con man. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew how to con that family into letting, you know, the Bud family into letting them take their daughter with him. And that's a great con man. That's what I thought was crazy too with Holmes, where he had led the, um, those kids, like the mother, like around where he had the kids and he like went all across, you know, the state, like different states. And like, she was like following him. I always found that fascinating that I have how easy that was. And he was just basically this, what was it? He was trying to, like, he kept telling her something that he had the kids, if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah. He would lie to her because of course, you know, the girl, the, her daughter would write the mother letters, but he would never send them. So the only communication she would get was from Holmes. But you're right, even too, at that time period, you're going to send your kids halfway across the country to be with this guy for a life insurance scam, you know, and, and you think your husband's alive, but he's dead. It was, you know, but again, that came down to money too. And, and maybe even Elber Fish, because he was showing cash. And, you know, you're talking about those times were tough, whether it was the depression or, you know, late 1800s, I'm sure it was tough. And Holmes knew everyone was a pawn to him. Everyone had a dollar sign on them. So he knew I'm going to get in good with tights on this family because one day he'll be abused. And he was, but that was his ultimate downfall, of course. Do you think actually with like, uh, with a lot of the older killers and stuff, do you think they would be successful in what they've done then now since technology has gotten better, you know, with everything with DNA and all that? Do you think they could still be you know, actively out there for a bit? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, one, two, three at the most, maybe. But, you know, I mean, no, there's no way. I mean, you know, with with number one, video cameras, really, especially. Mm -hmm. You know, if you go on a toll road, you know, and and computers, you go on a toll road, your plate license plate is going to be taking a picture of, it's going to be in the records that you went through the toll road unless you use cash, but there's still cameras everywhere. So Casey would have been, you know, even though nobody knew there was a body in his car, but they would have had proof that he went on the tollway when he went to, you know, dump the bodies in the river. So it's things like that. There are video cameras everywhere now. There's social media. And, you know, like even that, what was it, the Craigslist killer or grinder killer? I mean, he, I think he killed maybe three or four, but he was caught too. So mm-hmm. I think at the most they'd be able to do is maybe two to four. But I think, it, you know, it's going to get up caught. You know, it's going to catch up with them eventually, unless they live in some kind of a bubble. But, you know, I always thought about doing a, a film about, like, creating a perfect murder. And, you know, somebody could plan it perfectly, but there's always one thing that's going to trip somebody else, the unknown. You know, a neighbor could come home early or somebody sees something that you don't know or just some weird circumstance that isn't in the plans. So there's always something that's going to happen, and especially now with DNA typing. I mean, you know, when you watch these forensic files, when they, you know, can find out where a person was murdered by a little piece of a plant that dropped in the killer's car, and they can trace that, do DNA typing on that plant, uh, the tree, to find out that was the exact tree where that killer killed the victim at. It's like, you know, it's amazing. So I don't, you know, I don't think they can. If somebody committed, you know, like more than five or dozens now, I'd be shocked, really. You know, and again, it would be interesting to study the way they went about it. Because, you know, there was even that um, guy from Alaska, I always forget his name, he would fly here to the U.S., fly here to different states and bury his instruments, murder instruments, and then come back and kill someone, bury them again. So, you know, they, they try to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, utilizing, you know, whatever is available now and staying outside of technology, but it's very difficult. I think there was a Japanese killer that he killed all the women in his apartment. 
building or, you know, again, it's all these things. So I think that's why we've seen the numbers decline or they are getting smarter or, like I said, they're creating these torture, you know, uh, spaces, whether it's in a basement like that German guy when he was, you know, raping his kids. He had a whole secret downstairs where they have these, you know, uh, like the uh, toolbox murder when they have, the, you know, their own little RV or whatever that they're torturing people in. So I think there are some ways to get it. Hey, creepy crawlers! We wanted to take a moment to talk to you about this product we've been trying. Okay, the product is a Magic Mind. Um, you know, as the podcast, you know, we're creating content, and it's not easy. You know, it never has been. It takes a lot of time, patience, and energy to do it. It can be really stressful. But I found this little shot that not only gives me that energy, but also helps me keep focused. I'm getting this done in a quicker time, and you know, it just helps me be more productive. And it has really tremendously helped, you know. Um, I don't drink coffee, but the drink's not too bad, so I just drink it straight out of the uh, little bottle that it comes in. It's a two-ounce bottle, so I just take it straight from that, and it really seems to kick in pretty quick, but what was your experience with it? Um, well, of course you guys know I'm a mom of three. It's hard for me to keep up with my kids without heavily relying on caffeine, but I have some medical conditions that caffeine affects negatively, so I've been trying to cut down my intake, and I really have loved taking Magic Mind to help because it takes away that sugar crash you get because I drink coffee with a lot of cream and sugar and the caffeine effects, so I really have been more focused and keeping up with my kids and housework better, so I have loved that. It also has all-natural ingredients such as adaptogens and matcha, which I really enjoy. The the flavor is mellow and very earthy. It's also paleo-friendly, gluten-free, keto-friendly, BPA-free, and not made around any nuts. If you would like to uh, check out our uh, link to it, it's magicmind.co slash killer. They're having a sale on their uh, website, and you can use our code, killer20, to get an additional 20% off. It's interesting you mentioned like the perfect murder. Um, I just recently started writing to... Well, I know what the FBI kind of defines a serial killer as two victims now with the cool-off period. Yes. I know it was three. Yes. So technically, I'm not sure what his cool-off period, but I would say he's a serial killer. But uh, I wrote him a while back. He's in Indiana, actually. Like, the reason I wrote him, I like there's like a couple things on his trial, but there's like no picture attached to him at all that I could find. And uh, well, I wrote him a while back and he never responded back. So I was like, well, I'll write him again. Well, he actually wrote back. He's like, well, I didn't know, you know, if you, I guess people, you know, had sold his letters that wrote him. And he's like, I don't get much mail and stuff. But he ended up writing me back the second time. And he had actually, um, he's trying to think, he's been in prison since the 30s. But he's kind of oh, wow. mentioned about kill, he killed his mother in law and he killed another lady. And he, like, he gets out, actually, in, like, 12 years, if all goes well. And it's it's fascinating how, like, he gives a lot of information, like, prison information. But he had mentioned uh, a thing that he called Suspect Zero, I believe, if I remember correctly. And he thinks that there's one, maybe two or three serial killers out there that he calls a Suspect Zero that are you know, unsolved, basically saying that he thinks they go, like, kill somebody, then dump them somewhere else, change your MO, like, always evolving and changing till you can't really find a pattern with them. And he was asking my opinion on it. I was like, it's, it's possible. It really is. But like you said, with technology and stuff, they have to be really smart not to get caught. And like you said, two to four, 
you know, could be the limit unless, you know, they do, uh, unless they're like a mass murder or something and knock a bunch of them out, which it seems like we're kind of like the seventies and eighties and some maybe early nineties was like kind of with the serial killers. And it seems like more of like mass shootings, school shooters. It seems like we're in that age where that's happening, you know, more regularly. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. They, you know, the mass murderers have kind of taken over and, and, you know, it's anything from teenage kids to, you know, adults or elderly people. And, you know, it's just, you know, and that's what we have to study now and figure out, you know, why this is occurring. And, you know, is there that much anger, you know, in the world and, or in this country, especially, and that could be a big part of it too. But yeah, it is, it's kind of sad that, you know, that happens too. And, you know, I think that's why I think, you know, this younger generation, they're very fascinated by, especially the 70s serial killers, because they say, well, how could Gacy get away with that for so long? You know, they don't realize, you know, it's like, well, okay, no cell phone, he didn't up by grinder. It was like, okay, he picked up something in the street, took him back to his house, killed them and buried him under his house. There's no victim. Nobody's looking for bodies. They're just missing kids. No, no way to trace it other than if the neighbor, somebody saw it. And, you know, it's like, you know, who's paying attention there? What, who's getting in what cars, you know? And even the police, they didn't have a, a database or a system. It was actually because of Gacy that they created the national databases of, you know, missing children and putting the kids on milk boxes and, you know, all of these things that came after Gacy. It was really because of him because, you know, there was, of course, all this, you know, fury and, and everyone was upset because there were so many clues, but nobody picked up on them. Yeah, I actually worked with a gentleman uh, when I'd done security. Um, he lived in Chicago back when Gacy was active, and he remember, like, you know, he's like, I I could have been a victim of his, honestly. But I guess, like, his mother, like, made sure, like, I think he had a couple brothers, if I'm not mistaken, but I guess she always wanted them to be together when all that was going on and, like, not go anywhere by themselves because, you know, they were afraid of what could happen. But I was like, I figured that time frame, you know, which, like, with anything, when you got a serial killer running around, it's like everybody, you know, you got, like, some, like, lockdowns or something, and they're, like, saying, hey, you can't curfews and you can't be out this long, and just a lot of them, like I said, teaming up and not being alone. It's really, like, it's scary to think about, but it's not, like you said, it's very seems to be comedy more, which I'm kind of, did you see the article not that long ago where they actually had identified a serial killer from the eighties? I want to think it was the eighties. He had killed like uh hotel clerks. I think like three of them. I forgot what his name was. I didn't know about that one. Yeah, he was, he, he's been, he passed away in like 2013. So he's not going to serve any jail time, but DNA finally, which I'm, uh-huh. I'm waiting, uh, you know how they got the, like the Golden State Killer and all that, uh, what, Joseph D'Angelo or whatever, I think that's the last yes. name. Like, I know they said they were going to do that with the Zodiac, do you think that they could possibly do that? I mean, yeah, it could be, you know, again, you know, they'd have to have a viable, you know, DNA source, that's why, you know, recently they said they had blood from Jack the Ripper or something on a handkerchief, but, you know, again, the provenance and, you know, how long it's been and, you know, it's difficult, but, you know, the Zodiac, because that wasn't that long ago, that could happen. I mean, you know, we never thought that that Golden State Killer would be caught. 
thought, you know, and look what happened. So I think now anything's possible with, you know, DNA and just people talking or finding things or going into an attic of a house where somebody lived and finding something or photos or, you know, anything's possible, I think, nowadays. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's a movie I watched years ago. It's about the Zodiac Killer. It's actually really interesting. Um, I can't remember. It's not a well-known movie, but I forgot what's in the title. But this old guy and this couple, they like go in on storage units, and the, the old man's like, "I found something," and turns out it was like Zodiac filming his murders, and that's what he found. He got the Zodiac killer's storage unit. So the whole movie oh, wow. shows that the Zodiac killer's still alive. Like I think he had it like under somebody else's name. Well, they kind of like research to see where it came from. Well, it turns out the Zodiac killer's an old man, and he's trying to get all the stuff back. And yeah, it was really interesting. I thought it was an interesting oh, take wow. on that. I'm trying to think what that movie's called, though, but I think it has something Zodiac in it. Like, I'm sure... There was one that was just called Zodiac, too, I think. Yeah. Maybe that was... I think I have it. I haven't watched it yet. Somebody gave it to me at one of the conventions. I have to watch it, though. And, um, um, but I like those angles, you know, when, mm -hmm. when, you know, fictional films do that. But, you know, I mean, I think it's entirely possible, and, you know, we don't know what's out there. I mean, you know, that there was this latest thing about they knew who the Zodiac was. Well, the first thing, of course, I was interested. But then, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, I like you, I'm very involved in the true crime community and know the players. And I didn't know who these people were. It's like, okay, if it was Catherine Ramblin or Peter Brodsky or, you know, one of these people we know, it's like, who are these people? So I knew that wasn't, you know, it wasn't legit. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, you know, it's, so that's tough too. Uh, you know, I learned while doing the Gacy case, the lieutenant who's uh, Jason Moran, who's identifying, you know, identified victims, he says, you know, there's, sensationalism that people hear about in newspapers and talk about, but then there's the truth of the case, and not many people know the truth of the case, and that's what I try and do with my documentaries. I try and get down to that real truth or, you know, or the ultimate truth that I could prove, and if I can't go further than that, you know, that's the truth you know, I bring on screen. Because you're uh, speaking, I know, with like the Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, because your career yep. ties into his as well, which I always, a uh, few people I've talked with, like I personally feel like he might eventually have been caught, but I think if he hadn't have been, you know, taunting the police again, I think he would have most likely maybe lived, you know, and then died peacefully, not in prison. But I think him taunting the police really escalated, like with everything going on. But I, what was I'm trying to remember? What was the uh, connection? It was I know his was it the H.H. Holmes film, wasn't it? Yes. Now when BTK was writing the authorities all the way from the beginning in his letters he would mention you know certain serial killers that he admired or wanted to be like jack the ripper and he also mentioned h.h holmes in there so when he resurfaced in the early to mid 2000s i was contacted by the wichita police department and they wanted to subpoena all my records of everyone in wichita who bought my dvd of h.h holmes thinking you know again when the investigators can't find someone, they start casting these white nets and say, well, who knows? He could have bought this DVD. He was, you know, obsessed with H.H. H. Holmes. So I gave them my record. Of course, it wasn't. And then they were going to possibly have a film screening to maybe lure him out. Because as we know, serial killers might go to a film screening or a funeral of the victim just to kind of be present and enjoy the fact that nobody knows who they are. But they caught him before they could screen my film. That would have been cool. <laughs> my film caught the BTK, you know, but, um, but what, what's interesting to me is 
I think there is some credence on some of these killers do want to be caught. And I think personally, I think Dennis Rader is a perfect example because he had spent his whole life being BTK. His whole life, everywhere. BTK was over every newspaper, everything, right? Well, when he gets caught, he asked the police, will the floppy disk, can they trace them? And they said no. And he sent it to him anyway. But come on, he had to be smarter than that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't believe that. So I think he did want to be caught. So guess what? Now he's famous as Dennis Rader. So now he's got a new famous you know, life to live. And he's still loving the BTK. He still wants stuff put out by him. He still writes people. So I think that, that he, in his case, I seriously think he wanted to be caught. You know, I think he had, you know, had enough of, you know, his normal, supposedly normal life after doing all this killing. And he, didn't, he didn't want to live it out with his, you know, wife and daughter. And, yeah, I mean, that's what I seriously think. Because he, you know, they love the notoriety. And I think he was tired of being, uh, you know, known as a, a non-person that only has three letters. And he wanted to be known as the Nostrader. That's what I think. Because, you know, when he was in the courtroom, you know, he loved all that, telling the stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you could tell he was just kind of all, you know, having fun doing that. I'm trying to think yeah. with, with him, like, I agree with that. Like, you think, too, with him having kids, like, a floppy did. You know, you know what I mean? Like, I'm... Which I'm still fairly young, but like with technology, like with my kids, if they have something new that I didn't have, like I try to learn it. So you would think that he would know, like you said, know some idea of what a floppy disk could do and, you know, and stuff. And having kids, you think he would kind of be a little bit up to date on some things because, you know, they probably used them at some point, I would say. Right. And you would know, you would hopefully know not to trust the police because they're trying to catch him. So I think it was on purpose. That's how I feel. But, you know, we'll never know in some of these cases. In, in a lot of them, I don't think so. I, I think Casey didn't, you know, want to be caught, you know, even though he was telling his wife that, you know, one day his, you know, he's going to be on the you know, front page of every newspaper. He was giving clues throughout, you know, his entire, you know, last years to everyone. Um, do you have an opinion on like the future of true crime and documentaries. I know you said earlier that the younger generation kind of teeters on the line of crossing the line with what can be shown and stuff. Do you have a fear or an opinion about that? No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, again, it's, it depends on, you know, how people make these documentaries and films. I think if they're not extremely sensationalism, I saw a documentary way back when about uh, Bob Berdella, but it was just all blood and gore. And it was like, okay, but is this a documentary? I mean, you know, I, I did a lot of that with fish. I pushed, you know, the limits, but I, I you know, I don't think I went too far. I, you know, I'd show him, you know, eating a little girl or, you know, cutting her up and stuff. You know, I showed, you know, with me, it's like if you turn the audio down, it's just an old man cooking soup in a pot roast, you know, in the oven. But when you have the audio on, that's what really discussed. So again, I think if we go back to those days of, you know, less is more and have the imagination to things, I think that's very great. And that's creative if you go on that route. But also, I mean, I think, you know, some of these details should be told because, you know, it is murder and it's not pretty and it's nasty and these things do happen. I mean, people may not want to know that Richard Ramirez gouged the eyes out of his victim, but he did. And, you know, these things are real. You know, so you're right. But I think that the younger generation is more fascinated by it. Like, they do love it. You know, I mean, they come up to my booth at conventions and, you know, so there'll be young women especially, and their parents are like, well, we're worried about her. And I said, no, nurture that, because she could be a future judge, law enforcement officer, forensic 
psychologist, so nurture that. She's not a weirdo. You know, she's, you know, there are people in, in these positions, and the people in the, those positions, too, they enjoy true crime and, and collecting. You know, you, you look at Steve Giannangelo, who's a former police officer, he owns, what, three or four Gacy paintings, and, you know, uh, Elmer Wayne Henley painted by it as well. And that's awesome. I think that's really great that, you know, you tell people, oh, they're not just a weirdo. Like, you know, they could become on the good side of it. Like, don't think they're going to take the wrong path just due to their interests. Exactly. Because, you know, that's what society tells us. Well, if you're in horror films or true crime, you're weird. And, you know, I've been there since a kid. I mean, my, my one aunt said she'd never sleep in my room when I was a kid because it was all horror films and bloody posters. And, you know, I was into that. And, you know, just some people are. But again, especially when it's true crime, we need these people because that's why I'm against the death penalty. Because look at what Ted Bundy did. I mean, he gave, you know, the, the mind hunters information on how to catch these other killers and how they operate. So if there's something we could learn from them, you know, and, and you know, not maybe fix them, but learn from them in order to stop this from happening in the future or see early signs of it, I think that's great, you know, in our generation to be interested in this. That's one thing I do find interesting. Um, uh, the gentleman, uh, Bill Kimberland, that we talked to last week, like, there were a lot of serial killers, like, uh, well, not all, well, quite a bit of them, where they, like, kill, like, prostitutes, like, people that, like, uh, drug addicts and all that. Like, we were talking about that, like, people, like, you would think it's a very well-known fact, but it still seems like nobody cares, you know, even to yep. day and age, even though you know that they're a top you know, prime target for them. And it's like, oh, we don't need to really search for them. But like you said, you you never know. Like they could have, you know, disappeared for other known reasons. But, you know, a lot of serial killers like, hey, you know, they're easy because nobody looks for them. And you would think by now people would care more, but it seems like they're just kind of still forgotten about, which I think is really sad because every, like with Gacy's case, what is, is there four or five still unknown? I know they just recently, what, last year, Found another, yes. identified another well, one. Earlier this year, I think. Oh, it was early, okay. Yeah, might be. Yeah, I think it was year. earlier this year or late last year. I don't remember, but you're right. There was another identified. And, you know, with, with him, too, nobody reported him missing. His parents, family members. I mean, come on now. So, you know, you got to kind of blame them, too. Because here your son is missing. You don't report it. Well, how the hell is anybody going to know what's going on? Um, I you know, know in and, um, <laughs> the Fence Diaries... Uh, podcast where he had mentioned like uh, the cops had said when like they were trying to say that Gacy killed these gay men and all that like the phone calls was quick coming like they didn't want their kids to be tied into that like I that's not that that's not still you know what I mean like as a parent I would not want that like if my kid's missing and I'm like okay maybe they could have went to Chicago like if I you know living in another state like I would still try to because every victim deserves to have their name out there of course, you know, of course, and that's a, another point that I'm, you know, particularly showing in this case is that when he was arrested, school kids here in Chicago would make fun of other kids by calling them a Gacy. You're, you're gay, you're a Gacy, mm-hmm. you know, and then, um, you know, at his trial, people were saying, well, that's what they get. That's what gays get. That's what they deserve. So that was still in the 70s, you know, there was still a lot of that going on. And yeah, it is sad. And, you know, his Gacy's victims were so varied. They weren't all gay, you know, some were straight, you know, one guy had, you know, a wife and a kid. And, you know, they were varied. And a lot of these kids, it's interesting, if you get a chance,
chance to look up some of the mug shots of the kids. You see it's a square mug shot. You see a chain around their neck, and that same chain is on some of the other pictures. Well, that chain is attached to like a mugshot placard. So, yes, some of these kids were living dangerous lives on the edge, too. So, yeah, oh, yeah, we'll go party with you in the suburbs, not even giving a second thought, you know. Mm. Or maybe they wanted to rob him. There was uh, one story of one of his last victims that would purposely, he was straight, and he would purposely get together with gay guys to, you know, rob them of money or, or you know, say, hey, you know, now I'm at your house and I'm going to tell all your neighbors you're gay. And, of course, at that time, yes, Gacy did have, it's not an excuse, but he did that have that fear because he was a businessman and all that stuff. So, you know, at that time period, nobody, and that's why he used the excuse off bisexual because you can't see your gay at that time period. Uh, speaking of that, touching on that a little bit, do you think like if he was alive today, do you think he would be who he, who he was back then? Since, you know, with that community, it's more, would he admit it? Yeah. Like it's more accepted now. Do you think that that would have helped? Cause it seems like a lot of his aggression from everything I've looked at, it's like it transpired. Like you said, he said he's not gay, he's bisexual, but like, cause didn't he like with one of his, with his second ex-wife, like he just quit, like having like any sexual relationship with her. Like he yep. was done with it. Like it seems like now, like I said, it's way more accepting to some degree. I know some places are still kind of backwoods on it. And I find that fascinating how people, you know, can live like just be like, Oh, you know, they don't like it. Like, it's it's not hurting nobody. Like, right. like right. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I mean, I think if he was alive now, you know, he would be. There's two bars here in Chicago that you know I've gone to, to Shea and Jackhammer, and he would have fit in there as a bear or a leather guy, and he would have been able to do things and not kill people, and and it would have been fine. So yeah, I, I don't think he would have. You know, the repression of his father, religion, and the anti-gay 1950s. That's really what molded him as well. You know, because you're hearing gay negativity from your family, from your school, from your church, from society. Wow, it makes you feel like you're a monster. Well, guess what? He turned out to be one. And you know, he buried those, you know, boys. No, no, I didn't do it. I don't I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not gay. So it, it, that's what I mean, too. It's a very sad story. The society of the time period, you know, how he grew up with this internalized hatred of himself because of, you know, he had these feelings. And, you know, of course, hearing it from his father, who he loved, you know, even when his father passed, that, that you know, I'm sure that devastated him. No excuse, of course, because other kids, you know, may have gone through that or abuse too, but, he, you know, he had the, the mind and, you know, it just, it, it really affected him. Yeah, I could see that. Like, it, because, not really to say nothing bad about our area, but there is a lot of people like, uh, see, there's a gentleman we knew, like he basically like, if his son turns out gay, he's just disowning him at all. I'm like, I had a gay best friend growing up and like, he used to get bullied so hard in school and he eventually quit. Like he was getting basically like even the uh, principal at the time was saying stuff to him and he ended up quitting school. Like he's one of the best people I've ever met in my life and a great guy. and. He just couldn't handle the bullying anymore, and like people picked at him so bad. And, like he wore like eyeliner and stuff, and when that when he started doing that, it just the bullying just started way worse. And I always felt sad because yep. he quit tenth uh, or eleventh grade year, I think. So he didn't even graduate, or he might have had his GED by now. But he just didn't want to live, you know, in society. But like we kind of live in that small town, like people of color and stuff. 
like people's against that a lot around here and like i try to keep an open mind and try to branch out from that because i respect all people that i can respect you know as long as they give me respect i'm gonna respect them yeah yeah i mean and then that's it you know i mean in 2022 we still have this i mean they're not long ago i, I mean that case just wrapped up i think in the last year or two where the husband killed his little boy because he thought he was gay you know, there's a big trial about that. He's like a two-year-old or three-year-old kid or four or something. But it's like, you know, this still happens, you know, and that's sad. I mean, in Gacy's time period, they didn't commit suicide, but now there's more suicides. But you could see how all that internalized rage caused Gacy to, you know, do these things. And, you know, imagine that time. Again, it's no excuse, but he'd rather get rid of a body than, you know, and I think those are the ones that he really killed, the ones that threatened him. I'm going to go to the police. I'm going to tell your neighbors, I'm going to go outside now and scream it, you know, to find your family and tell all them. That was part of it too, obviously, you know, and that's why he let some of the victims go because those were the ones that didn't pose a threat to him. He knew they weren't going to say anything. Or thought. <laughs> yeah. yeah. With his first victim, what was it? Uh, was it 72? What was, the guy had brought the knife in the bedroom. Yeah. He thought that he was yeah, going well, to kill him, but yeah. well, he was cooking breakfast yeah. for him. I, again, you know, that's, I mean, you know, here's the thing. And again, not many people know this. My documentary is going to reveal all. There was a point when Gacy was in Waterloo. This was, you know, whatever it was, 68, you know, whatever, years, four years before that happened with the knife. There was a kid who he had chained up in his bedroom. And he was coming at him with a knife. And you know what he told the kid? Play dead. Nobody knows this. I found it in newspapers. So Gacy was into that crap way before 72. So uh, a lot of the experts don't believe that whole story of, oh, oh, you know, he came at me with a knife. And come on, you know, it's like it, when you think about it, oh, and you saw him, the guy saw him a knife. Or, you know, it's like it just doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's almost like his way of saying, well, it was an accident or he was coming for me. So, you know, there are still a lot of things from Gacy's, you know, interrogations that, you know, we'll never know. We'll never know the answer to. I mean, in the Rossi and Cram thing, unless, you know, Rossi, you know, you know, comes forward, he's, he lives about 45 minutes from here, you know, but, you know, it's, it's again, there's going to be all these, but I think the Gacy case is going to be like the Star Wars saga. I think it's never ending. Because, you know, of course, we've got these threats of these bodies to be, you know, uh, identified. But then, you know, what about his mother's house? You know, I know some people that are trying to get together that are trying to buy that property because supposedly they went there and looked in the wrong area. And that's why they didn't find anything. So there are all these unknowns, you know. It's it's very interesting. I felt so deep into it that, you know, it's almost maddening. <laughs> and then when you take into consideration that there are still things going on, still people telling stories now from that time period. Again, you know, I should have wrote a book too, or maybe I will. It's just things I've uncovered blow my mind, especially with some of the experts or the people involved with the case, how they're trying to um, take credit for things they didn't do. Go figure that out. That would be... <laughs> Hollywood doesn't show that, you know? Yeah. It's weird how um, uh, politics really go into things like this and like egos and all that it's 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 crazy how all that ties into it yep 
And that's what it is. It's really ego-based because, again, when I have some of these people claiming they did this and the other people didn't, but I know for a fact and by the law that other people did discover these things. It's just, uh, yeah. But, again, it is ego. And people think, oh, all these years later, this you know, this young guy's not going to know. <laughs> it's like, of course, I know I did all my research. So if something doesn't match, I'm going to, you know, question it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hollywood like, wouldn't care. Hollywood would be like, yeah, whatever. You know, and I don't badmouth stuff, but, you know, this, there's a new Netflix documentary on Gacy, and um, they had the photographer, Marty Zelensky, on the show, and he's obviously a photographer. You know, and here's Hollywood. They, they spent millions of dollars just on the lenses that they rented. You know, this is what I was told. And, you know, they have this photographer, and they bring him into this house, and they bring him into a room, and there's all carpentry stuff in there. He says, Why, what's up with all this carpentry stuff? They said, oh, we thought you were a carpenter. This is Netflix. He said, no, I'm a photographer. So if you watch that show on Netflix, look at the background. It's all like carpentry products. So it's like, you know, it, you know again, they're just jobbers. They're just doing the job. Whether they get it right or not, they don't care. They, yeah, they seem to more or less kind of, they know it's big right now. So they they just jump on all of it. and. And just take off with it from there, like I. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know. Again, but I really can't wait to finish mine. I'm, you know, I'm looking to have the final edit done this year, and then wrap it up early next year, and you know, hopefully get it out there real soon. But you know, I, it's going to be done when it's done. I don't want to rush it. And I want to make sure everything's in place. And I've interviewed everyone that I wanted to. There are two others that I, I still want to grab, but you know, that could be at any point. But. Um, yeah, it's it's just an epic. So you know, it's very interesting. You have uh, season three of the serial killer culture two coming out. Is that going to be this year or next year? Uh, well, I want to get it out this year as, as soon as possible. So I'm kind of working on that and the GC, and I'm uh, working on some other book projects for some other people. And um, but yeah, season three is going to be interesting. It's got um, writing to BTK. Uh, Sick Rick masks, who uh, Rick Fisher makes all the uh, serial killer masks. Uh, there's going to be an episode on serial killer tattoos and why people get them. I've interviewed two women who used to own the house on the property where Holmes murdered little Howard Pipes, and they say his ghost is there. I interviewed artist Jeff Bader, who actually worked with Gacy on that card series when he was in prison, and he wrote to Ramirez and some other killers. So, again, I, I really love serial killer culture. It'd be great, if, obviously, if I got a budget one day, because people love it. They can't get enough of it, and I want to continue it. But, you know, it's just you know, it's just money for travel and all that stuff. But, you know, I... Yeah, I love the, like, like you said, you get, like, a different perspective of, like, why people do, you know, collect or they sell or why you know like with different things because like some people will find like uh, houses and everything that's tied to murder and then they buy it you know fix it up or they could like do something like a museum out of it but like like you said it's, it's a big thing and i i know for a long time too it's kind of true crime was kind of like the hearsay of like oh we can't talk about it but like i said now it seems but do you think it will ever go back to that do you think it will always kind of be out there in the forefront people talking about it and be it becoming more popular like what you said with the younger generation do you think that's continue gonna but keep continuing to go on with the other generations coming up i think the the, the yes the fascination and the interest will continue but I think this rise in popularity will go down 
that after that, I saw more people being in, in, you know, interested in true crime and wanting to talk about it again, especially the younger generation who's fascinated by these predators from the past, you know, that we mm-hmm. don't like these, you know, archaic dinosaurs, you know, but they're so fascinating, you know. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. I think it is a fad now, and I think it'll drop off, but because, because of what it's been brought up to, I think that interest will always be there. It's not going to go back to, oh, this is a dark, scary thing. I think hopefully the doors have opened to where we could show interest and talk about it in like the ways that we're talking about now. And I think that's the best discourse. It's like, you, know, you know, if we focus on the bigger picture and, and try to, you know, understand these people and, and, you know, figure out, you know, how to make things better in our world, then that's the best thing that could come from it. So, but yeah, I, I think it'll drop off a little bit, but yeah, the interests will always be there. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, before we wrap this up, do you have anything to uh, add before you go? Well, just that, uh, you know, again, I, I give you high regards for, you know, what you do with your work, you know, spreading the word and publishing your books. And, you know, that's a lot of work, too. So, you know, I congratulate you on that, too. And, right, thank you. you know, it's always, you know, good to see, you know, people with an interest such as yourself and other people. And, you know, we all, you know, are in the same circles and we're all, all interested in each other. So, you know, I want to thank you for doing that, too. All right. Yeah. Thank you. And like I said, thank you for all you do. Like I said, you're a big inspiration to me and you're actually kind of one of the reasons that got me back into like, uh, you know, like oh, I'll do some book projects. So you're one of the inspiration behind that. I'd love to f- do film, but I don't know if I would ever be able to do that. Like, I don't think I have ideals to do stuff like that, but I don't think I could actually put it down like I would want to. My mind rambles around too much. Yeah, it, it, it's difficult, you know, I mean, I, I still want to make films, but I, I, I'm really enjoying working with books, you know, because, you know, they do get out there, they're a source of information, so I'd like to, you know, do a little bit more concentration on books, but yet still, you know, do my TV show once in a while and a documentary, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely understandable. I, I know with, like, like when, you know, ebooks came out and stuff, like, I... I'm still like, I don't mind reading an ebook, but I still like having the physical copy in my hand. I don't think that'll ever change because, like, I don't get to read as much as I used to, but usually, like, at work, I read during my, like, I always have a book on me at my lunch break at work. And sometimes I'll read when I get home from work, like, to calm down or something, you know, before I go to bed. But, like, I still just love that physical copy in my hand. Like, like meeting people, you know, getting signed. Nobody can sign an ebook compared, you know, to an actual physical copy. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I'm the same way, but you're right. It's like, you know, I offer DVDs, and, and at some conventions they sell more than others, but, you know, those are for collectors, and they can get them signed or give them as gifts to people. When, so, And the books are like that, too, where people, wow, and they, they do give them as gifts to people. I had a woman order the Ed Gein book, and she wanted me to sign it to her friend and personalize it with this. She said, Ed Gein. Uh, wants to make a lampshade out of your skin because you light up his life. <laughs> so I'm like, why not? You know. So you know, again, there's there's also this tongue in cheek, and you know, I I try to have some humor with these cases, especially the older ones because they're so deep. Um, you know, at the conventions, I sign, you know, Casey, don't look in the crawl space, and Dahmer, don't look in the fridge, and you know, people like they laugh, they laugh, they enjoy that because they know what it's all about, but they know it's a deep subject as well. But they're just happy meeting me, and like you said, it it's it means everything in the world, and and what you're doing too, it's just so important with the paper. 
Oh yeah. Um, where can you uh, find all your films and stream them and all that? And like your books, I know like Amazon's a big thing, which are they still on Amazon prime or I know they were off for a yeah. bit. Well, what, what was going on is I have a new distributor. So I had to pull them from Amazon and now my distributor is putting them all back up there. Now they're all up there, I believe, except homes because that's going to be included with prime and that one's taking longer, but that should be up in this month of May. But right now, the best place is Tubi. If anyone has Tubi, get the app, watch Tubi, it's free. All of my works are on it. My complete catalog is on Tubi, and you can watch it for free, and that's the best thing about it. You know, and it helps me out, too. You know, the more people that watch it, it, it helps me. So right now, I'm telling everybody Tubi, but if I'm also on like channels like Voodoo, Roku, Apple TV, uh, Amazon. So you can find my stuff out there if you type my name. You know, or my website is just johnborowski.com, and, you know, my stuff's out there. The books are on Amazon. Uh, but again, for my store, it's store.johnborowski.com. That's where you could buy my products, and I will autograph them for you, you know, personalize them, whatever you like. So I have a lot of people ordering, you know, books, posters, and DVDs off the site, too. All right, all right, yeah. Uh, but I uh, thank you for, uh, you know, talking with us. I could probably talk to you for all night. <laughs> oh, yes, I know so much. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, yeah, definitely let's do it again soon. I appreciate it. All right, uh, have a good night, and we'll uh, try to try to set something up possibly in the future when you get, you know, uh, some films like your Gacy Project out or your uh, Season 3 of The Serial Killer Culture. You know, we'll try to yeah. set something up. But uh, have a good night, and we'll talk to you later. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Olivia. I'll see you guys soon. Take care. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, that was our uh, interview with filmmaker and author John Borowski. Like I said, check out his films. Tubi is a good place uh, to... Uh, sorry, I had a Australian <laughs> thought. But yeah, Tubi is a good place to have. It's free, like he said, and it's very I good. I didn't know all of his stuff was on there, though. That's interesting. Yeah, like, there's movies I watched growing up as a kid. I think that's awesome. And, like, I know he probably gets paid from, like, yeah, just like the views said, of more it. and more views helps him out. Yeah. Yeah, you got to support. Like, but he's an indie, watch, indie person, so yeah. the more views he gets, even if it's playing in the background, still helps. But to get to watch, like, that good of work for free is, like, wow. Yeah, you're not, you're not getting, <laughs> like you said, like, that's crazy. They spend millions of dollars and get the whole setup wrong. Like we watched that, but I like I didn't pay attention to that. Which it's crazy. Yeah, Tubi. Like I said, definitely Tubi. It's really good. Like I said, there was a vampire movie I used to watch growing up when I was little, and that was one of the. Uh, it was like twenty dollars on Amazon to buy, and I found all four. So it had been twenty dollars a piece for all four films, and I found them all on Tubi for free, which is great. But like I said, check out his website. John's a great guy. I've known him for a good bit. I was featured, uh, one of my uh, letters was featured in his uh, John Wayne Gacy book that he done. Uh, I didn't have anything John Wayne Gacy related stuff. It, well, it was related to his case, but it was from another case that they said that he worked with Gacy and stuff. And with the, uh, crap, I think, Chicago Ripper uh, crew. Um trying to think what else but like i said check out any of his work uh like i said he he was just in columbus i wish i would have known that because columbus is not a far far drive for us but like well a couple hours but it'd be nice to go up there what 
then you're like, oh, it's not a far drive when it's to, well, it's like, your bad. favorite people. But if it's, like, the aquarium or zoo, you're like, well, i got to drive forever. Well, it's not that <laughs> far. It's not that far. <laughs> but uh, we thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode.